So without further ado, I am going to jump right into um, what I've prepared. And I asked Alan, I said, Alan, what sermon series are you doing right now? Is there a chapter of the Bible or a book of the Bible that you are preaching through that I could maybe do a part of that? And Alan said, you know what, Luke? Yes, we, are, we, are, we have a sermon series, but would you be willing to preach on the Great Commission? Now, for me, having someone ask me to preach on the Great Commission is like giving a dog a pork chop. That pork chop is going to be eaten up, torn apart. It's going to be gone really quickly because that dog loves that meat. And that's kind of like me right now. The meat here is the good news of Jesus Christ and is the Bible verse, right? And I can't wait to talk about it. Okay, and this is the word of God for us. Now it's translated in English, but we can learn from this, right? So let's listen carefully. Jesus came near to his disciples and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And don't forget, don't forget, I am with you always to the end of the age, that is, to the end of time. Well, we'll come back to that, but I want to tell you a story. Right? So Jesus says, I'm telling you to go, and not just go to Jerusalem. How could we translate that now? Don't just go to Charlotte. Right? Don't just go to Shanghai. Don't just go to London, right? The big city, the place where people have already heard. So let's say, uh, let's use Thailand as a metaphor here. Don't just go to Bangkok. In fact, go to the whole province surrounding Bangkok. And in fact, don't stop there. Go to the northern part of Thailand. And when you get to the northern part of Thailand, don't stop there, go into Myanmar, right? That's maybe a modern equivalent, right? The, let's keep moving. Let's keep, keep this gospel moving out. How did, how did the gospel get here today that I'm preaching? What happened so that this could, we could be doing this this morning? Well, we could explain it a couple different ways. Here's how I'm going to explain it. Well, first of all, the disciples of Jesus who originally heard these verses, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, they had to take it seriously. They didn't go, oh, Jesus, we, 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 we like the idea of that, but we think you mean it as a metaphor, right? No, you really mean this. And so the disciples they shared the good news in Israel, beyond Israel, 
And they were making disciples. They were baptizing. They were teaching God's commands, just as we see in these verses. And they did it all throughout that part of the world. Right? And eventually, the good news of Jesus made it all the way into Europe. So in the 5th century, that is the 400s, in the 5th century, a monk named Augustine. Now I want to be careful here because some of you have heard of Augustine of Hippo. Maybe you probably preached about Augustine of Hippo, I'm sure, many times. This is a different Augustine. Okay, so this is not the same person. But there was a monk named Augustine in Rome, and he talked to the Pope, the head of the church at that point, and he said, I think we need to get a group of people together and we need to go to all those people in Great Britain who have never heard the gospel. We're going to take a group and we're going to start churches and we're going to do evangelism and we're going to disciple people in Great Britain. Okay? And that's what he did. And it worked really well. Right? I think when we think of England now, we think of There's a lot of Christians in England, right? So it worked really well. Now, uh, after uh, the the church grew in England in the 16th century, which is the 1500s, John Knox, again, maybe you've heard this name. I'm sure you have mentioned this name, Alan, at some point in a sermon. Um, John Knox, who was a pastor in, in Scotland, he went and he studied under John Calvin, maybe another name that you have heard before, right? A famous theologian. This was in Switzerland. So John Knox travels all the way to Switzerland to grow and learn. Now he comes back to Scotland, okay? And he has a new way of thinking. And he goes, we really need to read the Bible. We really need to get what we do and how we live the Christian Christian life directly from the Bible, which was not necessarily what was happening in Scotland at the time. So he helps to reform, reinvigorate the Scottish church. Well, that Scottish church eventually becomes the Presbyterian church. Okay, are we starting to use, we're starting to hear terms probably that we know a little bit, right? We are in a Presbyterian church right now. So John Knox is one of the people that starts the denomination, the Presbyterian church. And he does that so that people will hear the gospel clearly in Scotland, but it doesn't end there. So in the 1730s and 1740s, there are many immigrants that come from Ireland from Northern Ireland, from uh, Scotland, and from Wales. And they come and they settle in North Carolina for a better life. The problem is that many of these are not well-educated immigrants, right? These are blue-collar. They have a skill, but they do not necess- they haven't been trained to teach the Bible. Well, up in Philadelphia in the United States... There are many trained pastors. It's a great place to live. Great quality of life. I'm not sure how much, uh, if there are any Thai people here or people that have been to Thailand, but what if someone gave up a job in Bangkok? Great place to live. 
very wealthy. And they went to Maasai, or to the border of Myanmar, where it's very poor. And they went and decided, I'm going to start churches here and disciple people uh, here, right on the border of Myanmar, where there's war. It's a war-torn area. That's what these people from Philadelphia are doing. Because North Carolina is backwoods. There's no big cities. It's not rich. These people are rude, right? They come from poor families, but that's what these pastors from Philadelphia did. They came down here and they started churches. And in fact, if you, if you drive around Charlotte, you will see some churches that say started in 1760, started in 1780. Those churches still exist because of those pastors who came as missionaries down to this area. Now, what happened in Charlotte, I'm not done with the story. This is a long story, isn't it? I'm not done. Now, in the, in the 1970s, what happened was a lot of people were getting together and going, sadly, some of these Presbyterian churches that were planted a long time ago, they're no longer teaching the gospel clearly. They're more interested in helping rich people feel good about themselves about doing good things. And we're worried that they're just telling people to be good people, that we've lost that Jesus Christ died and rose again for our sin. And so there was a small Bible study that met after, off of Alexander Road, not far from here. And they said, we want to start a church, a Presbyterian church that clearly preaches the gospel and disciples people. Well, you know what church that became? Christ Covenant Church. And it started with just 10 or 15 people that prayed and studied the Bible together. And over time, that church became Christ Covenant Church. And so today, we are worshiping in this location at this church because from Jerusalem all the way to Charlotte, North Carolina, Many people took the gospel and the Great Commission very seriously. They gave up their wealth. They gave up family. They gave up um, knowing that they had a, uh, a, a good retirement account. And they went because that was more important to them than their own comfort. Now, I have not even touched on the fact and I am very aware in this congregation that many of you have done just this. You have given up what you had to move to a new country, or maybe your parents moved to a new country. You have sacrificed so that your kids could hearly, clearly hear the gospel presentation. So I realize in some ways, to use an American English idiom, that I am preaching to the choir I don't know, is there a good translation for that in Chinese, preaching to the choir? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I don't know the idiom for that in Chinese. But I'm preaching to the people that already know. You know what it costs to cross cross-cultural borders. So let's move on. I'm trying to say that if we don't take the gospel seriously, whether it's here whether it's in this state, whether it's in this country, or whether it's beyond the borders of this country, 
we don't really fully understand the gospel message. Now, I'm going to be careful here. If you're thinking, oh goodness, is this guy going to tell me that I have to move to another country, sell all my possessions, and, and go to seminary like Alan, and then become a missionary? I'm saying no. And we'll get to that in a second. I'm not saying that, okay. So let's be careful here. But what I am saying is that the Great Commission is the mission of the early church. So this is not just one verse. This is the whole feeling of the New Testament. All of the New Testament talks about the Great Commission. The fact that we should always be going, baptizing, discipling, teaching, wherever we are, wherever we are sent. Now let's think about what a commission is. So it's the idea that someone with authority, we can think of this in military terms, let's say, you know, a general in the army, he commissions another officer under him. Well, what is he doing? He's giving that per he has authority, and he's, he's giving that authority to another person. He's saying, because I have authority, I'm now giving you authority to do your job and make decisions. And that's what the Great Commission is. It's giving, it, God is giving you the authority to do the work of telling people about Jesus, of discipling, of baptizing. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That he just didn't do it on his own. He gave that job to us. Now let's look at the New Testament. But yes, do we see the, 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 the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Yes, we do. I read it, right? Um, but is there anywhere else that we see it? Right? I've already argued that there is other places. What about Mark 16? It's in Mark 16 as well. Okay, let's go to Luke. Is it in Luke? Yep, it's in Luke 24. It's there in Luke 24. Um, what about John? Now, John often, the Gospel of John, often has different information than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. They kind of give us an overview of what happened. They're giving us the information. But John does it a different way. He's giving you a feeling, right? He's speaking particularly to a Jewish audience, and he's saying, I want to show you that the Old Testament and the New Testament connect and that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So we might think that John might leave the, the Great Commission out. He might leave it out, but he doesn't. In fact, in one verse, John 20, 21, there is a real short version of the Great Commission. So all of the Gospels almost at the very end of all of the Gospels, certainly in, in Matthew, it's at the end. There is a version of the Great Commission. So that seems pretty important, doesn't it? If all of the Gospels say, say something about the Great Commission. Now let's not even stop there. The beginning of Acts starts out with the Great Commission. So in Acts 1.8, and I'm going to read it, um, let's see, yeah, I'm going to read it now. So Acts is an account of the growth and the persecution of the early church. 
And it opens with the Great Commission, almost like a mission statement for, the, for, the, um, uh, for Acts. And here's what it says. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? They talk about what they've seen. And you will tell people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And in some translation, it says the, the outermost parts of the earth. And I can't remember if the, the, the Greek in this situation talks about the islands. Sometimes the way the Bible in the original language talks about the, the, the places way out there, it talks about the islands. In a sense, we're almost talking about like the Pacific Islands, right? The hardest places to get to, right? That's where the gospel needs to go, everywhere, right? So now we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts all giving us an account of the Great Commission. Again, we're not going to stop there. I really want to make this point. So in, um, in, uh, Paul, in Paul's writings, right, the Apostle Paul, right, who you might remember, who has this encounter with Jesus, and he falls on his knees, right? He's, he's persecuting Christians, but he falls on his knees, and he repents and says, God, I'm going to do whatever. I've met you. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. Well, he becomes a missionary, right? And he goes all over the Middle East and tells people about Jesus. And the reason we know that he succeeded in doing this is because we have his letters. So think about this. Um, if we look at the letters that uh, Paul wrote, just the names tell us all the different places that he connected with, started churches, evangelized, discipled, right? So what about Colossians, Ephesians, Romans, Philippians, right? Colossians is not just a group of people. It's a place, Colossae, right? Ephesus, right? Rome, Philippi, right? These are all different locations outside of Israel, okay? And what's fascinating to me is even in Philippians, at the end of Philippians in chapter four, in chapter four Paul even thanks the Philippian church, and he says, thanks for financially supporting me. So what's amazing here is already early in the church, we see people going out, discipling, evangelizing. Those churches grow. Those churches catch a vision for, whatever, for, for Paul's ministry or other people's ministry, and they go, how can we help? So the Philippians here supply all of the needs that Paul has for him to continue to do ministry elsewhere. Um, so I want to conclude this point. So this point is that the Great Commission is the mission of the early church, is kind of this, this first point. And I think we can see from all of this that ultimately um, the New Testament confirms that the Great Commission is all throughout the New Testament. Now, let's move on from that. Because um, sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, sometimes I go, oh, it's so much fun to read the New Testament. Right, there's people going places and things, things happening. And I can kind of relate to that. But as soon as we get to the Old Testament, I go, it, it kind of feels disconnected. It's too old. Did these things really happen? God seems pretty angry in the Old Testament. And, he see, and Jesus is like happy. He's the, good, he's the good version of God in the New Testament. Do you ever have that feeling? 
right? I know that's not true, but do you ever feel like that, right? I do. I do sometimes. But I think if we rightly look at the Old Testament, we see that that's not actually true. So in the Old Testament, the commission of Israel, right, the, the, the task that God gives to Israel is to make God known, not just in Israel, but throughout the world. So has the, have things cha- did things change in the New Testament? No, they didn't. The plan in the Old Testament is still the plan in the New Testament. And let me try to make that argument here. So um, in Genesis 12, and this is talking about Abraham, it's a famous passage. You may have read it, right? Genesis 12, um, Yahweh, right? God, the Lord, reveals himself to Abraham and he promises something. He tells Abraham that he will bless all of the nations through him. Now you can read this two ways. Yes, in some ways this does look forward to Jesus because Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. But I don't think we should only look at it that way. I think he, God really means what he's saying right now at this time, which is your job is to make me known, is to bless the people around you, right? As you follow God, you should be telling people about God. And Abraham, in some senses, does that. You look at him trying to save Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance. He's pleading for God to protect them and to save them. Now, ultimately, God decides not to because the absolute abject evil in Sodom and Gomorrah. But you see Abraham reaching out to people imperfectly, not perfectly around him. Um, So let's not just look at Abraham and this this promise he makes to Abraham, but look what happens later. So once uh, Joseph, right, Joseph in the coat of many colors, right, if you remember that story, right, he gets thrown into a well by his brothers. They don't like him very much. He gets sold into slavery in Egypt. Well, then he rises through the ranks um, and ends up being the right-hand man of Pharaoh. Well, Joseph, you might not know this because it's kind of in just a couple of verses, and you could, you could skip over it pretty easily. Joseph marries an Egyptian woman. That, marries, that means he's marrying a non-Jewish, non-Israelite, non-person from his group of people. And that person is now in the line of Jesus, an Egyptian woman. Let's not, not stop there. We could talk about Ruth, if you've ever heard about Ruth. She's not, she's not an Israelite, but she's grafted in because of her faith right? Ultimately, we could talk about uh, Rahab, Ruth, Rahab. Rahab helps the um, spies that are going to come and overcome Jericho, right? And because of Rahab's faith, she is grafted into the people of God. So we see that God does not only care about um, naturally born Jews. He is all about bringing people in. Um, Many of the Psalms talk about this. I'm going to skip over this um, just for time's sake. But we see this in Psalms. Let the nations be glad. In Psalm 67, it says that you're saving power. We want to see your saving power among people everywhere. Right? And then Christopher Wright, who's an Old Testament scholar, he's a missiologist. He says this. I'm not going to read the verses. You could read them later if you want. It's in Isaiah 43. But it's about God saying, I want to make my name known. I want to show that I'm greater than all these other gods that are really not gods at all. He says, and this is what Christopher Wright says about, the, about Israel, about this passage. He says, how will the rest of the world come to know how the great truths about Yahweh, 
right? And when we say Yahweh, we mean the Lord, we mean God the Father. How will they understand Yahweh? Well, this question is essentially a mission question, right? And it receives the answer that Yahweh entrusts his intentions for the nations as witnesses from his own people, that is Israel. So when we look at the Old Testament, we go, well, the good news didn't really get out, did it? Are we going to blame God for that? I don't think we should. Israel did a really bad job. They did not do their job, first of all, obeying God, worshiping God only, and they certainly did not go out and tell people about who God was, who he was. Right? Often, they would meet people and then they would just worship those other gods. Now, if that was the end of the story, that'd be a really sad story, right? There'd be no hope. Everyone would be destined for destruction. What, we, we, we messed it up. There's no way for us to fix it. God would have every right to just go, well, I'm giving up on you. I'm done. But that's not what happens. Because next we see that we... Um, that in uh, the Gospels, we have the perfect missionary that comes. So in John 1.14, and I'm quoting from the English message version of the Bible, which is an easy to read version in English. Um, and uh, this is what John, this is what actually Eugene Peterson, who translated this, says about this. He says, the word became flesh and blood, moved into the neighborhood, and we saw the glory with our own eyes. Right? Jesus, the word, the message himself comes. Where Abraham failed, where David failed, where Solomon failed, right? Where all the, the prophets ultimately failed, Jesus succeeds because he is both God and man, right? Sherwood Lingenfelter, who is a, a famous missiologist, says this. He says, um, Jesus is both... Uh, um, is both God and man. He is the ultimate cross-cultural missionary. Because if you're God, and all of a sudden you become man, you have a body, a heart, you can stub your toe. Not only that, but you're a Jewish man. You are in a particular culture. You have just crossed a lot of barriers to get there right? Jesus crossed the ultimate barrier. And why did he do that? Because he's perfect. He's God. He can take our place, but he's also, um, well, he's man, so he can take our place, but he's also God, which means he's perfect. And he ultimately beats death and rises again from the grave. Now, my point here is not to give you the full gospel message, but do you see how the, the mission of God is a cross-cultural mission? And the way God structured it for Jesus to become a man, to be also God, he's the only one that could have done this. And that's the good news. You know, my five-year-old daughter sometimes says, it's hard to believe in Jesus because I can't see him. And if I'm honest, there are times in my life where I go, yeah, I like to believe in what I can see. I can see Eric right there, right? I know he's right there. Right? I don't have to worry about, is that really Eric or anything like that? 
Well, with Jesus, he's not sitting in the front row that I can talk to him. Jesus, did I say that correctly? Is there a better way to say that? I can't do that. This is, this is the question my daughter has. And this is what I always tell her. You know, I agree, Lee is her name, that trusting in God is hard and it's difficult. But my, but my response to her is that while we can't see you, him directly, all of the testimony of people that did see Jesus bodily in his body as a person, it's all there in the New Testament. These are people that were willing to die and did die for the fact that they met Jesus, they lived with Jesus in a particular place in Israel, in Palestine. They saw him die and then they saw him after he was raised from the death, uh, raised from death. Right? That is the beauty of Jesus, is that we don't have to worry about uh, the Buddha. Did he really live? I don't know. That's a long time ago. There's, there's not a lot of good eyewitness accounts. What about Hinduism? Well, it's hard to tell. There's a lot of conflicting things. Well, what about Islam? Well, Islam came with a sword, so people converted because if they didn't, they were going to die. And yes, Christianity did that a little bit too. But at the beginning of Christianity... People were willing to die to say, I saw Jesus. I saw his miracles. I heard him, right? This is what I'm talking about when we, as, as missionaries, and we're all missionaries to some extent. Some of us cross cultures, cross cultures for a living, but some of us don't. But this is what we have to hang our hat on and say, no, no, no. Jesus was the ultimate cross-cultural missionary. We're going to wrap up here pretty soon. But... I think um, you may be sitting and going, okay, that's great. Thank you for telling me a little bit more about Jesus. Maybe I already knew that. Maybe I didn't. Thank you for telling me about the New Testament and the Old Testament. I think I agree with you that the Great Commission is all throughout the Bible. But what do I do? But what do I do when I leave this church? I get up out of my chair. I go home, right? I maybe watch golf on Sunday afternoon. I take a nap. I go to work on Monday. But what, what does this, can this change me? Right? Yeah, I think it can. I think if we realize that ultimately the job is not just ours, but the job is of the church, both locally, this church right here, globally, the church, is to tell other people about Jesus, disciple them, baptizing them, teaching them to... Um, teaching to the, them to obey all that I have commanded you. So it's not your job. Go home and watch golf. Don't be stressed out about, should I be doing something else? Do a good job at work on Monday. Raise your kids well. However, it may change how you interact with this church. What do I mean by that? Well, I think what we can, we can say is that, you know, being a part of a church is ordinary, right? Michael Horton says this, the church is not just where disciples go. It is the place where disciples are made. We grow by ordinary daily habits and practices. The weekly service of the word, which is where we are right now, and the sacrament, communion and baptism, along with its public confession of sin and faith, which we already did. We read the word. The prayers and praises, these are the fountains that flows out of our homes and private rooms throughout the week. And as we come, I would hope that if you think back maybe a year, two years, five years, 
Maybe you weren't even a Christian at that time. Do you see God working in your life? My guess would be yes, you do. Let that continue to happen. And here's three quick ways where you can continue to grow in Christ. Now that we understand, I think, the Great Commission rightly. You can pray, you can give, and you can go. So it's really easy. Pray, give, go. We can remember three words, right? So you can pray. You can pray for missionaries such as uh, Denise and I. You can pray for other missionaries that you know, right? Now you can also give. You might not know this, but for every um, $10,000 that we all make as evangelical Christians, uh, most of us are middle class, if not wealthy. Um, we have the means. We probably own our own house. We live in a nice apartment. Out of every $10,000 that we all make, do you, know how many, do you know how much of that goes towards sending foreign missionaries to the hardest places in the world where people have never met a Christian? $1. This is across the board. This isn't just Charlotte. This is not just the United States. For every $10,000 that Christians make, only $1 goes to send missionaries to the places where Jesus is not yet known. Now that is not to put a guilt trip on you. But it is to say, humbly, are you giving are you giving out of the joy of the Lord and out of what the Lord has entrusted to you? So let me ask two questions. And I think this will help if you feel guilty or you maybe you don't feel anything at all. If, you're, if in your heart, when you think about your money, your primary goal is, how can I be comfortable? How can I send my children to the very best school? How can I have that vacation that I deserve? How can I make sure that I have enough money that I am very comfortable when I retire? If that is your only concern, that, now that should be a Some of those things should be concerns. But if that is your primary concern, I would argue that you are thinking about your money in the wrong way. And see, I can talk about money from the pulpit because I'm not Alan. See, I'm this guest preacher who just gets to leave, right? So, like, I don't care if you're angry at me or not. But the reality is, whose money is it? Whose money is it? It's God's money entrusted to you. And so, I am not arguing that you sell everything and give it to the poor. What I am arguing is that if, as you are, the joy of the Lord is welling up in front of you, you say, you know what? Maybe I don't need that vacation this, this year. Or maybe I can spend less on that vacation and I can give to um, Cross Covenant Chinese Church to support the ministry of Cross Covenant Chinese Church. I can give to that missionary. Hey, I would love it if you gave to us, but I'm not going to argue for that. Give to a missionary that you know, maybe someone you grew up with. Help them. Give them $25 a month. Give them $100 a month if you know you can handle that. Right? Knowing that that investment is ultimately well beyond this lifetime. It's not for your retirement here. It's for your retirement in heaven. When you will meet the people that because of that money you gave, you will see them in heaven because that missionary was able to go to those people. 
So what I'm, I'm, I'm arguing here is think about how you are using your money. Are you being stingy or are you being generous? And only God can, God can answer that question. I cannot answer that question for you. I can't say how much you should give, right? But I think you can. You can answer that question. Lastly, go. I've decided to go. Denise decided to go. Um, I'm not expecting that a lot of people in this congregation would feel the need to go. But if God's welling up something through the Spirit, you're, you're get, you get excited about the fact that I would love to move to a new place where there are not many churches to tell people about Jesus. If that gets you excited, talk to Pastor Allen. Right? Talk to someone else in this church. Talk to your friends. Friends, hey, I'd be happy to talk to you. But don't let that go. Um, right now, just in Thailand, we could use another probably four to 5,000 missionaries to really saturate Thailand for the sake of the gospel. Do you know how many, the percentage of Christians in Thailand right now? It's half a percent. And that's everybody that says they're a Christian. Doesn't matter if you go to church or not. Half a percent says, yeah, I'm a Christian. They might not know what that means, but that, that's what they would say. So for a country that large to have so few Christians, it takes a lot of missionaries. Okay, let's finish. It seems like from everything we've talked about today, man, we hit a lot. Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, what we can do, it can be overwhelming. And I don't want you to come away with this idea of I should do something. Because God is way more interested than who you are and who you are becoming and your Christ-likeness than what you outwardly do. And here's why I know that's true. Because whether or not you uh, do everything you possibly can, even out of great motives, God has called you to do something, myself included, okay? Um, how much at the end of my life do you think I will have actually get, gotten done? Do you, think, do you think Thailand will become a Christian nation by the time I die? No. So here's where we hang our hats at the end of the day, is Revelation 7, 9, and 10. This is what it says. I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, which is Jesus. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, great sound. I feel like Chinese does a great job of this. Renau. Did I say that correctly? Renau right? That feeling of excitement, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about if you've ever been in that situation, the hustle and bustle of, of being with other people and it, it's exciting and you want to be near those people and it feels good, right? I've, I've only ever experienced that in China, right? But that's what I feel like it'll be like in heaven, right? And all of us who know that word in Chinese, we're going to be telling people like, oh, that's right now. That's right now. That's what you're feeling right now, right? Um, so that's going to be happening. 
right? And in, and, and in the, these verses, um, Jesus is getting the, the worship he deserves, right? And it should remind us of Jesus enter, entering uh, into Jerusalem before he was crucified. Remember people were waving palm branches, right? This is clearly referencing, Revelation is clearly referencing this, right? And do you know what hallelujah, right? Or Hosanna, I'm sorry. Hosanna actually means, it means save us, right? It's not just a term of thanks, it's saying save us. Well, in heaven, Jesus has saved us. And it's people all over the world. We know this will happen because it's in Revelation. This is, this is a prophecy. There will be people from Nepal, from Thailand, from the United States, from Brazil, from South Africa, from Ethiopia, from Namibia, from Laos, from Vietnam, from Mongolia, from Russia, from Japan, from Australia, from Papua New Guinea, from Indonesia, from Malaysia, from Taiwan. There will be people from all over the world worshiping before the throne. Is the pressure off yet? It's not your job. It's the job of the church by the Holy Spirit. And we know that this will happen. If it was up to us, yes, we can't do it. We're too weak. We messed just this week. I, 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 I did something sinful. And as soon as I did it, I went, oh, I can't believe I did that. That was so dumb. Lord, forgive me. Oh, woe is me. But you know what the Lord says? I know. And I'm still using it. Repent and believe and move forward. So let me leave, leave you with this statement. When you hear the term, the Great Commission, I hope what that reminds you of is that's all of our jobs and that's the job of the church. Whenever we meet someone that's not a believer or maybe someone that is a believer and they say, I don't really understand. Like, my, like this friend of mine in China who said, I don't understand why the Old Testament matters. My heart, the Holy Spirit inside of me, wept and went, let me tell you why that's important. As God changes our hearts towards that, that's how we fulfill the Great Commission. May it be so. Helen, would you like to come up and pray? All right, let's pray, friends. 天父我们感谢你啊把我们的心交在你的手里啊我们的今天是由若干的昨天来构成的而在我们的历史当中看到你的百姓在不断的奉献热忱奉献生命有人为你流泪有人为你流血才有了我们今天在这样一个舒适的
将福音的种子播撒在这个世界。我们所有的付出，所有的仰望，都不是徒劳的。将来在你的国里边，我们将得见丰硕的收成。这是我们生命价值的根源。感谢神，再一次借由你自己的话来激励我们众人。祷告祈求不配，奉主耶稣基督的名，阿门。All right, thank you, Luke.